I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. everybody it's jj it's dave and we're back with another episode of instrumental it's jj and dave (laughs) (laughs) oh we're past that yeah uh uh-huh okay today you get to meet our friend mark schultz it's dave (laughs) just kidding we're talking about mark now dave okay okay so mark has sold two million records that is so many millions i mean like two (laughs) One is a lot. In in the world of records, one is a lot of record. One million. <laughs> <laughs> Selling one record is also a lot in the world of music. <laughs> he has had 10 number one radio singles. That's a lot of that, number ones. That's 10 more than I've had. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously he's a super accomplished singer and songwriter and performer But when I think of Mark, I think of my friend. Dave and I met him on tour. What year was that? I think it was spring of 2014. Yeah. So while we were on tour with him, we had just decided that we were going to move back to Tennessee from Arizona. On that tour, we would look for houses on our days off in Nashville. That was a crazy season. Oh, man. It was, oh, it was insane. And... I remember Mark saying, hey, if you guys move to the Nashville area before 4th of July, we would love to have you come over to our neighborhood. We have a 4th of July parade every year. It's going to be really fun. So he he said that, and it was very kind. But I had learned previously living in the South before that that's kind of what you do in the South. You say, hey, let's get together, or hey, I'd love to invite you to this thing. And then you don't really follow through with it. You're just being nice. Yeah, it's it's just a way of being polite. And so I thought it was kind in the moment. I didn't actually think that he meant it. And so things move forward. We signed the papers on our house in Tennessee on July 1st. Yep. A couple days before 4th of July, Mark texted us and he said, Hey, are you guys here? Because we'd love to have you at our parade. And I cried because I I was nervous about moving back to Tennessee and I wasn't sure if we were going to have any friends. And here was Mark reaching out to me to make us feel welcome. And so we went there and we literally spent the entire day with the Schultz family. And that's when I met Kate, his wife, for the first time. And she's now one of my dearest friends. And I'm so thankful for her. Well, that's just the sweetest. I know. I just love the Schultzes. Well, enough about you. (laughs) Let's hear about Mark. Okay. Just as a little reminder, if you're new to our program, we tell the story of our guests starting near the present and working our way back in time. So we're starting at Act 3, and we will make our way... Back in time. Like I said. (laughs) Just to be clear... (laughs) 
We're starting now. <laughs> okay. I think they get it. Okay. You're turning red. <laughs> Take it away, JJ. <laughs> okay. Act three, I'm in. In this most recent chapter of Mark's life, he's digging into what it means to be a husband, a father, and a member of his Nashville community. Let's hear what he's been up to. Ever since I was a youth director, there's two guys that I've had lunch with every month. One I wrote a song called He's My Son for. He is 20 years older than me, and one is 10 years older than me. And so over these last, gosh, 25 years, we've had lunch every month. And it is so, they just can't wait to hear my stories because they want to relive all the crazy things that I was, you know, getting to go through as being younger than them. And then I can look at the guy that's 10 years ahead of me and say, oh, this is coming. And this is how he's walking through it. And this is what's real to him right now. And then there's, you know, the guy who's 20 years older than me. And I'm like, okay, so that's what I'm going to be. And it's so interesting for what I think about things. They kind of mellow out to the guy who's 10 years in front of me. And then they really mellow out at the guy who's 20 years. Each level of person, as you get higher up, is saying, man, slow down, relax, don't miss it. Do you have an example of, like, the lessons that those guys are learning that you haven't necessarily walked through? I mean, is it like losing people? Is it relational? Like, Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the things that I learned from the one who's the oldest, whose son had cancer, and I wrote, he's my son for. Look, nobody wants to go through that. And his son's fine now. He's cancer-free. No parent wants to go through that. But he went through it. And he got through it. And my thought would be when I'm talking to him, Man, you just want to get as far away from that moment as you possibly can. You don't want to go anywhere near that. What I learned from him was he is an expert in that. Part of the start of the bike riding thing was riding, raising money and awareness for cancer because of his son had cancer. And we went to Lake Tahoe and a bunch of us on the team from our church rode. And a guy got up and spoke about his son had cancer. And I watched him and my friend whose son had cancer, sit there, and the way he listened to him, they were speaking a language that only you spoke if you'd had a son or daughter with cancer. The rest of us were hearing the words, but they were feeling what they were saying, you know? And so when it was over with, I said, what do you do now? How do you get away from it? How do you just clear that out of your mind and don't go back to it? And he said, interestingly enough, he said, a friend of mine, we went back to the hospital, and uh, he said, as dumb as it sounds, we dressed up like clowns. And I said, what'd you do? And he said, uh, we got in and we thought our job was to go into the cancer ward where all those kids who were young and had cancer. We thought our job was to go in there and make them laugh and smile because we know how difficult that is. And he said, we soon realized that it was good for the kids. They liked it for about five minutes. But he said, we soon realized it wasn't the kids we were showing up for. It was the parents of the kids who weren't experts yet. Mm-hmm. They were just starting to learn what that was like. So he said, we'd sit down with them. And I said, what do you what do you say to somebody? And he said, sometimes they want to laugh. They just want to let some steam off. Sometimes they want to cry. And sometimes they just want somebody to sit next to them and not say anything. And we know enough that our job is not to try to fix anything. We're just going to sit with them and just sit through it with them. And I thought, man, that's wisdom, you know? That's Mm -hmm. really wisdom. That's what you get from sitting at a table with people that are 10 and 20 years ahead of you, you know? It's like 
they're pulling me up the ladder and I'm reaching back down with the other hand and pulling the ones behind me up the ladder. Hmm. That's the perfect picture. You know, that's the perfect picture of what mentoring looks like. Let's talk about family. Introduce us to your kids. Yeah, so we've got Ryan, who's the oldest. He's eight, and Ryan looks exactly like me. He's a mini-me of me, but he's smart like his mom. So he's got that going for him. And then Gus looks like Kate. He's almost six. Looks like Kate, but acts exactly like me. So (laughs) the gene pool got mixed up there and went in different directions. (laughs) So we've got the, the people that should look and act like us. That's been switched. And then, man, I tell the story, you know, um, I was adopted. And when my mom and dad came to the hospital room, I always say, yeah, how's that story go again? And they're like, well, we walked in the room, we saw you, and we have to decide if we're going to adopt you or not. And I looked at you, and then I looked at your dad, and I said, well, what do you think? And my dad just kind of looks around the room, looks down at me, and he goes, I'm in. And I was like, could you... Could you make up a better story than that? Because that sounds like you're going through the McDonald's drive-thru. That right there, that's that's an awful story. But as time has gone by, I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool how they would say, I'm in. And I was like, I wonder how they knew how to do that. And Kate's like, well, I think they probably loved a guy who did that to them first and said, I'm in. And I said, maybe we should try to live like that. And she's like, I've been doing it for a while, but you can join me if you want to. And I was like, I was like, okay. So I dug my heels in the ground. I was like, I got my arms out and I'm saying I'm in and I'm just seeing, okay, but I'm nervous. And I've just, I'm thinking this could go so wrong. And um, one day we got a call from China and they said, hey, we think we've got your daughter. Kate screams from the office. And I came back there to see what was going on. And I just saw the picture on the computer and she turned around And she said, I've just got my arms out going. She goes, what do you think? I go, I'm in. Mm. Man, I'm in. So we we went to China and adopted Maya May, one of the greatest days of my life. And she's three and a half now. And man, you know, I have two boys. They're natural. But with her, I always say she's my first daughter. Wherever she's going, I'm going with her. The other two guys, things happen. I don't know. Uh, But with her, there's no way. There's no way. I'm leaving. No, I'm joking. But uh, she just got me wrapped around her finger. And then my wife wanted to do something special to tip her hat and my hat to my folks to say I've had such a great life and, and I'm so grateful for what they did for me. We went back to the same town in Kansas where I got adopted in the same adoption agency. And she called me one day and she said, hey, what are you doing? My wife did. And I said, you know, I'm doing a show. And she said, uh, how fast can you get to Kansas City? And I said, what's going on in Kansas City? And she said, well, we're going to go pick up your daughter. And I said, I've already got a daughter and she's in Nashville. And she goes, nope, you got a new daughter. And uh, so now we got four kids and they're the greatest. Feels like I'm dumping my life into something that's more important than me. Mm. Yeah. It feels to me like the ages that your children are, it requires... A lot of attention, a lot of A lot of everything, attention. really. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot, man. So there's not a whole lot of songs being written. You know, I just heard <laughs> I heard a guy say, I did an interview the other day, and he said, uh, man, he goes, I can't wait to hear all the new songs that come out of this coronavirus, all these artists that got nothing going on. Man, they're just writing songs, and I think we're going to have a renaissance as soon as the coronavirus. So we're going to have amazing songs. And I go, buddy, I'm just trying to put my pants on in the morning. That's what... <laughs> I don't have any extra time for writing great songs or anything like that. I'm like, if I don't show up, people die. You know, yeah. I'm on my 36 diaper today, guy. So uh, <laughs> he was a millennial talking. He didn't know. So right. uh, 
Anyway, it just feels like I've never been busier in my life. I told my wife, coronavirus season feels like Groundhog Day. We do the same day every day, but I get a year older, you know, each day. <laughs> so, and you know, Kate, you know my wife, and she's the greatest. I mean, she is the greatest. And so I think if we weren't best friends and didn't love to be around each other all the time, it would be tough. It'd be a struggle. I remember the office, Andy Bernard in the office, and he goes, you know, I wish people would tell you when you're going through the golden times that you're going through that these are the golden times, you know? Mm -hmm. Why am I trying to rush through this looking for the next thing, or am I doing it right? I just want to get to something comfortable that I know. Man, no, you're in the right time. Slow down and enjoy it. Just be in it and, mm -hmm. and let that be the thing. Do you feel like you're able to remind yourself of that in these moments? With, Absolutely with... not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> we love the Schultz family so much, and I've already said that a bunch of times, but they're really the best. Mm -hmm. And they certainly have their hands full in this season of life with all of their very small children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we, a few years ago, when Dave and I were celebrating our wedding anniversary, we went out to dinner, we had a babysitter for the kids, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun since we have the evening free to hang out with Mark and Kate? And so I called up Kate and I said, hey, can you guys hang out with us if we bring cheesecake over to your house and we could just spend some time on the porch while your kids are in bed sleeping? And they said, yes, we would love that. We haven't gone out in so long. So we brought our little to-go containers and we sat out. They have this really they, beautiful... It, they were to-go containers but they had fresh cheesecake. It yes, wasn't like, it wasn't just hey, trash. here's our leftovers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> will, will you guys eat our leftovers? You want our table scraps? <laughs> um, and so we just sat on their porch. I think maybe Mark built a fire out there and we just chatted. So that's kind of become a little bit of a tradition for us. Maybe like once or twice a year if we'll randomly. We go out on a date and then we get cheesecake and we just hit up the Schultzes. Yeah, and it's the best. It's a good time. Dave, are you ready to jump back in time to 2007? What happened in 2007? Act two. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Act two, it's not about you. Hey, that rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> Mark has been a spokesperson for orphans for years and years. But back in 2007, an unusual and slightly perilous opportunity presented itself. I had written a song about being adopted and how grateful I was to my birth mom, who I've never met. But it was kind of like a letter to her, you know, saying, when you gave me up, you gave me everything, you know, mm -hmm. essentially. And that became a big song on the radio. And... Um, family Christian stores called and said, hey, we started this thing called James Fund, which raises money for orphans. Will you be the spokesperson for that? And I was like, man, I would love to be. I think that'd be great. And they said, we want to send you to Mexico. And they sent me to Mexico and we went down and we met uh, some folks who ran back to back, Beth Guckenberg and her, and her husband. They took a youth group down there and they took a taxi to an orphanage and they said, what do you need? And they said, well, the kids haven't eaten in a long time. And they said, what do they need? And they said, meat would be great. So they went and bought all this meat and there's like 
30 kids in the orphanage. They start fixing these kids hamburgers, but they make like 100 hamburgers and they're all gone, you know, and they're like, where is this? So Beth follows one of the girls around and this girl's taking hamburgers and she's going into her bunk in the orphanage and she's pulling back her mattress and they're all stuffing hamburgers underneath their bunks because they never knew when they're going to get meat again, you know. So Beth and her husband just moved to Mexico and they started being back to back, the hands and feet for the orphans. And so they would just take care of all the orphanages around there. And they grew this unbelievable thing to support orphanages. And so I remember going to visit the orphanages and I was pretty moved, but Beth goes, hey, you're a spokesperson for Family Christian Stores. And she said, uh, let me just tell you something. She kind of got fired up and in my face a little bit. And she's the sweetest lady ever. She said, you can be a face on a poster in Family Christian Stores that say, hey, I was adopted and I support adoption. And she goes, that'll be fine. But she said, I want to challenge you to do something crazy and just make a dent in this thing and just get people's attention. You can go easy and just do it for publicity or you can make a difference. And I remember it stuck with me. And one night I just got up in the middle of the night and I go, Kate, my wife, had ridden her bike across the country. And I thought, man, who has done a tour where they rode their bike across the country and did shows, just rode their bike up to the church and did a show? And I asked my wife before we started, I said, hey, let me say, what if we were to do this? And for three months, we didn't make any money and we just gave it all away. And uh, Kate just starts crying. And I was like, okay, I didn't mean that. I meant, what I meant was, no, no, no. She said, we're going to do it. And I think it's an awesome idea. Hmm. I'm just sad because I can't do it with you. Because hmm. she was in residency, medical school, and she was all for giving all the money away. Hmm. Well, man... We got an old tour bus, and we got <laughs> we got a great crew of guys on that bus, and we started off in California, dipped my back tire in the Pacific Ocean, and started riding. And the second day in California, we just left breakfast at like the Shoney's, uh, the Grand Slam, and uh, <laughs> I had a 100 miles to ride. And I remember it said, there's only one way out of California, I think it's Interstate 10. And so I got on Interstate 10 West and started pedaling. And I realized, I looked down and it said, do not go West. Well, I thought, yeah, because I'm going to the East Coast. So why am I going West <laughs> on an interstate? I got on my bike and I had to run across six lanes of traffic at eight o'clock in the morning Oh my gosh. on Highway 10. And I got to the wall and I jumped over the wall that separates it. And then you got six lanes going the other way. And I'm riding my bike on the inside lane and people are going 80 miles an hour. And I remember this pickup truck came up behind me and I thought, I'm going to get killed. I surely will get killed. This pickup truck came up behind me and it was two guys and they pulled up and they go, are you okay? And I said, I think so, but I just can't get off the highway. They pulled in front of me. They took my bike. They threw it in the back of their truck. They put me in the back of their truck and they got me off. And they said, we saw a guy get hit and killed uh, here last week. And so we saw you and we thought you'd lost your mind, like you were, something was wrong. So we just came and got you off that interstate. I should have been dead probably for even oh, trying wow. that. But those are the kind of things like, man, just people coming out of nowhere to help out for that. Did you get sunburned like crazy? Oh yeah. There were days where, uh, you know how you put a helmet on, there's the air things, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, I would take <laughs> that thing off and do a show and uh, my face would be beet red, and then I would have these white lines in my head. But it looked like <laughs> it looked like a candy cane going up all across the top of my the top of my head. But it didn't matter. It was just part of the deal, I guess. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> And I remember there's a guy named Hector Tovar. 
and he was a triathlete for the uh, army. And some days we would line up people to ride with me, you know, if we were in their area. And Hector Tovar was on the website and he goes, hey, I'll ride with Mark. But it turned out he had a triathlon, like a major triathlon the day before. And so he wasn't around when we had to change the time to meet him in Albuquerque. And I just remember we showed up at five o'clock in the morning at the gas station, getting ready to take off and go up these series of mountains out of Albuquerque. And there's Hector Tovar ready to go. He had won the triathlon, got back at one o'clock in the morning, saw my note that we needed to leave the gas station. So he showed up and we started up this mountain and he said, uh, hand me your water bottles. And I was like, my water bottles? And he said, yeah, give me everything off your bike. He takes all my water bottles and he's putting them in the back of his jerseys. And he's got like 10 extra pounds of what I've got. The wind's blowing straight at us. And he said, hey, tuck in behind me. And that guy took me 85 miles up this mountain. I never would have gotten up myself. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, man, it's my job. <laughs> it's my job to get you to the next place wow. and be a part of the story you're writing here. Yeah. You know? Man, I saw that time after time after time, people coming out to just say, man, we just want to be, we just want to be a part of this thing, you know? Man, and I say this, I would have never ridden my bike across the country if it was just for me to do it, to see if I could do it, I would have made it one day. But these kids halfway through my bike trip, they sent from Mexico, they sent these notes in Spanish that I couldn't understand, but each one of them sent their picture. And in my map holder every morning, I would get up and I would put one of the kids' pictures in the map holder ride for them one day and then we would tape their picture in the back lounge of the bus and by the time we finished we had you know like 62 pictures of every kid we rode for and i will still yeah. say to this day people will say you know what we've come to a lot of your concerts but you've never sung like you did on that tour mm. you've wow. never spoke like you did on that tour and we didn't even have a set list i would just go out there and i would just start playing and singing and this sounds so weird to say and i even hate to say it when we were doing the show and giving all the money away me and the guys on the bus, we would come back and everybody would be involved counting the money on the table and everybody would just be laughing. We would just be laughing so excited that none of us were getting the money and it was all going to these kids that couldn't afford uniforms. All the money from the shows I gave away, all the merchandise money we gave away. And so we did it. I rode my bike from California to Maine. We did 14 shows along the way. People just kept following me every day because I think they thought I was going to die. So they started giving more money and more money <laughs> just to be off their conscience. And um, by the time we finished that thing, we'd raised a quarter million dollars. Oh, unbelievable. What was re-entry back into music like after having an experience like that? That was the hard thing was um, it really took a while for me to get used to doing concerts again to get paid for doing concerts because <laughs> I felt like in a way it felt good to support my family, but in a way something else was kind of hollow. Something else was kind of lost. Yeah. When I was on that bike ride, I felt like I was winning every day because it was like, man, I'm made for this. You know, I love to ride my bike and I love to sing and I'm giving all the money away and these orphans are getting the Civic Center thing and they're getting the basketball court and all that kind of stuff. They feel like they're winning and I feel like I'm winning. And it feels like that's the right, man, that is the right place to be, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, even talking about it now, I go, man, the magic was in sitting in that thing where your purpose was pretty well defined and it wasn't defined as you. It mm -hmm. wasn't defined as 
hey, come here, Mark Schultz, sing and do a concert. It's going to be great. And man, the album photo is unbelievable. And I think people see that as being the thing. And even record companies see that as being the thing. Their all focus is how to market this. How do we make this thing marketable? And when I realized my best moments over my last 20 years were not in the marketability. They were all in the pouring into something, you know, mm. and lifting something up. And out of that came great stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what I say. Hmm. You had the time where you stepped away and you lived in Europe for a mm -hmm. while. Yeah. Was that for rest? You really needed a break or like what happened with that? I think what I had done, and I didn't realize at the time, and because I was loving it, but I also realized I was running myself into the ground. Like, so where some people can sit and write a song in 15 minutes or 20 minutes or, you know, two days or whatever. Like, sometimes I'll sit on songs for years or six months or whatever. And I remember being at First Pres and being leaning over a piano and my, you know, my back hurts so bad and my shoulders are all slumped forward and all this kind of stuff. But I wasn't going to stop because I was like... I don't want to go back to Kansas and say I didn't make it, you know, and I had that mentality the whole time of writing songs. And so I just remember when I'm 80 years old, I'm paying for this like a professional football player, almost like I was playing so much and I was getting into some real bad habits of leaning over the piano and all this kind of stuff. But these great songs were coming out and it was almost like, you know, a football player that is a great running back. But then when they're 35, they can't even walk. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I could see myself as man, I'm kind of doing that to myself. And I just didn't have an off button. You know what I mean? I was just going, going, going. I'd go do a show. I'd come back to the church, hang out with the kids, and then stay up till four o'clock in the morning and write another song. Hmm. And a lot of that was a fear thing, fear-based maybe, because I was like, I don't want to go back and say I, I blew my chance. And so when my wife was finishing medical school, we realized, hey, we don't have a house anymore. We don't live in Nashville. We did. And then we moved to North Carolina for her to do residency. We just sold our house. We don't have a house. And we were like, we can do anything we want to. So we went, just went to Europe. And that's when we realized, oh, man, this is what it feels like to slow down. And we would go into a park and we would see families that would literally go to the park with their kids and be there all day and bring a picnic. And it was all about where I think in the United States, it's living to work, which is what I was doing. I was just living to work and work and work and play and play and play. And I've got to climb the ladder. And I want people to take notice of my songs to, in Europe, it was people were working to live, you know? And it was like, hey, this is what life is. It's sharing a meal with people, you know, that you don't even know. And I just remember we were in Spain and we stopped to ask some people directions. And then Kate's given her email address out to them. And then they still are on Facebook together and they're just the greatest people in the world. And they're like, man, this is what life is about. It's about community. It's about sharing. It's about slowing down and just enjoying life. And I was like, what is this? Man, I haven't experienced. I'm just used to going, getting a plane, getting on a, you know, getting back to the youth group, all that kind of stuff. You know, in a way it kind of ruined me a little bit because it's <laughs> The mentality of you got to go and go and go and go. And I go, but wait a minute, that feels like a big gray streak. But spending time with my family and, you know, even when it's tough, this is a theme I guess I'm hearing. Whenever you pour into something that's not you, you know, and you give everything you've got to that, ah, oh, man, and don't make it about yourself. I think that's where the good stuff is. It's such a great reminder hearing Mark talk about these things. I mean, we've realized the exact same thing in this stage of life. Yeah, we've kind of reached the middle age mark. 
And so we started to look around and see, are there people that we can pour into? I mean, whether it's our family, other artists, it's no longer about building your career and your career alone. It's about pouring into community. Yeah, who, who can we help along the way? JJ, let's crank up that time machine and head back to 1994 when Mark Schultz was 23 years old. Yes! And he set his sights on Nashville, Tennessee. Here we go. Act one, it's who you know. Thousands of people come to Nashville every year full of big dreams to make it in music. But as you probably already know, for most of them, the dream never materializes. Mark's road to discovery included a best friend he didn't know, a hot pepper eating contest, and one of Nashville's most famous music venues. I was in college and I wrote songs. I was in a singing group in college that was Kansas State Singers. And so I wrote a song about my grandpa and I was in marketing just because my roommate was in marketing. I thought he was cool, so I thought he <laughs> And so it comes to my senior year, and I wrote the song about my grandpa, and I sang it at the big production where everybody from the college comes, and my parents were there. And they were really moved by the song. And I said, hey, I want to try to go to Nashville, and I want to just try to do it and see what happens. And they were like, what? But to their credit, they said, okay, if this is what you want to do, what, what are you going to do for a job? I said, I think I'll become a professional waiter is what I think I'll be, and, uh, <laughs> and just do it that way. So I just remember packing everything up. I owned my Mazda RX-7, which is not a lot of stuff, and, and driving to Nashville. <laughs> and I remember driving, and there's like a glass wall between Kansas and Nashville. And the farther I got into Nashville, it was like, it's almost like a rubber band that gets stretched. You know, it felt like that thing is just going to snap me back to camp. Because everything <laughs> in me was saying, you got to go back. What happens if your parents get sick? What happens if your grandparents die? What happens if you're, it felt like I was going to the moon, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember I called the Renaissance Hotel and I was like, hey, do you have a job for parking cars? And they're like, yeah, uh, won't you come interview? I went to the hotel and I interviewed with the guy who for parking cars. And he goes, I hate to tell you this, but I got no jobs for you. I did two weeks ago, but we filled it. And I'm like, oh, no, I have no place to live and I have no job. And so in comes this restaurant guy and he's mad because somebody just quit. And he's like, what do you do? And I was like, what do you do? And he said, I'm the restaurant manager. I need a waiter. And he said, are you a waiter? Have you ever been a waiter before? And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he hired me on the spot and he said, we just need a waiter. And if you've done it before, that's great. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. A few months before I'd come to Nashville, I went to ASCAP. There's ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. What they do essentially is if you write a song as a songwriter and the song gets on the radio or gets airplay somewhere, their job is to help collect the money for that. You know, So it's like a little accounting firm where they keep track of everybody's money and then write artist checks and, and uh, that kind of stuff. So I thought, well, that... I just saw the building. I thought, that seems like that's a start. I don't know. I don't know anything. It's, but it's on Music Row, so it's got to be important. So I showed up at ASCAP, and I said, do you think I can get an internship here? And they were like, yeah, come talk to us when you get into town. And so then I go to ASCAP, and they go, we're sorry. We don't have any internships. We really don't. And I was like, well, what do I do? And I walked out the back door, and BMI is at the back. You know, they're another place that collects royalty for singers. Right? And I walk in, and I'm sitting there, and there's a girl that comes out front asked me what I'm doing. She's really nice. And, and I said, well, I'm trying to get an internship. And she goes, are you serious? And she goes, I'm going to Europe second semester. If you say that you are my best friend 
and we've known each other for a long time. You can get my internship and I can give it to you and get out of my internship without getting in trouble. I was like, okay, best friend, let's go make this happen. <laughs> so I went in and got the internship and I started with her for a week and she was just showing me what she did. And after a week, she was like, man, you are a nut. You need to hang out with a guy I know. And I was like, well, who is it? And she said, his name's Mark DeVries. He's a youth minister. And I was like, a youth minister. She goes, yeah, here's his number. And I remember ripping it up in 10 or 11 pieces and throwing it in the trash can because I was like, he will make me hang out with kids and I hate kids and I don't want anything to do with them. And so I threw it away. And every day I was a waiter and every day I would come back to BMI and she was gone. She was off to Europe. And I, you know, like nine months go by and my dad, he and my mom came to Nashville at Thanksgiving time. And by that time I had come in May and I, I knew that by November, it wasn't going to happen for me. And I remember my mom and dad, and we went on a walk around Nashville. I took them on a tour. And we got in front of the Ryman Auditorium. And my dad remembered the Ryman from the Grand Ole Opry when he was young. And for people who aren't familiar with the Ryman, can you just describe it real quick? Yeah, it's the mother church of country music. And so it is this big church in downtown Nashville turned into a concert hall, which is unbelievable. I mean, like everybody from Elvis to everybody's performed there. So it's one of those magical places that you can stand up on stage and you don't need a microphone. You can just sing and everybody that's sitting in that room feels like they're just sitting right next to you. It's unbelievable. So we're standing in front of the Ryman and my dad puts his arm around me and he said, is this where my son's going to play one day? And I just went, and I said, Dad, it's not going to happen. I said, man, you've got to be the biggest of the big to perform here. And I just, I just don't see any way this is going to happen. And he had his arm around me. He said, nope. He said, uh, this is where my son's going to play one day. Hmm. And I was like, oh, man, I, this is the worst moment of my life. I'm heartbroken. I'm like, this is not going to happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, what was going on with music during that time? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. When I was at BMI, I finally got enough nerve to ask one of the guys there if he would listen to my songs. And he listened to my songs from college, and I had three of them, and I played and I sat in his office, and I remember he listened to the first one, and my knees were knocking because I was so nervous. I'd worked there for like nine months, but I was just so afraid to get an answer on these songs. And he listened about halfway through, and he stopped, and he fast-forwarded, and it was a tape, and he went to the next song, he listened halfway through, and he fast-forwarded. He got to the third one, he listened halfway through, fast-forwarded, and he stopped. And I thought to myself, either this is going really, really well, <laughs> or there's a problem. And he said, man, your songs kind of get me, and then they kind of, I get lose interest in them or whatever. And he said, I, I want to be honest with you, I think probably maybe that's not your thing. So if you find what your thing is, go do that. But I'm just trying to save you some time and this may not be your thing. Wow. And I remember leaving his office thinking, man, I think this is my thing. One day I came into the hotel. They said, if nobody comes, it's on a Saturday. If nobody comes by noon, you can leave. So it's like 11.55, and I'm going to lock the doors, and I'm thinking I'm going back to Kansas because this is just isn't happening. And I'm getting ready to lock the door, and there's a foot gets in the door, and I'm like, what? And it's this couple. They come in, and they go, hey, we've got a free lunch. We need to have our free lunch. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is the Boo. worst. Hello. I can just see the tip's going to be nothing on this one. This will be awful. So they come in and sit down. I'm talking with them, and I bring out their plate, and there's a hot pepper on this guy's plate. And he's like, hey. Waiter, 
I want to see how tough you are. And I was like, okay, weirdo, maybe he will give me a tip if I play along. So he cuts the hot pepper in half and he gives me the hotter half. And he goes, whoever drinks my water first loses. So we're staring at each other and our faces turn red and we're sweaty and my lip does the quiver and all that kind of stuff. He's looking at me and I'm looking at him. He's looking at me and I drank his water. I drank his wife's water. And uh, off their table as a waiter, I'm drinking their water. And uh, he goes, man, you're, what is your name? I said, Mark. Mark Schultz. He said, what are you here in town to do? I said, you know, make it music. And I said, what's your name? And he said, Mark. He goes, you must be pretty smart. I said, what's your last name? He said, DeVries. And I go, are you a youth minister in town? There's a million and a half people living in Nashville. Are you a youth minister in town? And he goes, uh, yeah. How would you know that? And I said, nine months ago, I met a girl named Caroline, my best friend from BMI. <laughs> 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 that I don't know anymore. I'm, I, knew, I knew her for a week. And she told me to give you a call and that we were supposed to meet. And so for like three months, he kept calling me saying, hey, let's hang out. And I was like, man, I don't know. I just, I was thinking of every reason not to hang out with him because I knew he was going to make me hang out with kids. He called me one day. He goes, you like skiing? And I was like, man, I love skiing. He goes, let's go skiing. He just didn't tell me I was going to take 15 seventh graders with me. And uh, we get in a van and the kids, you know, drank Mountain Dew and I got duct taped to the back of a bed, you know, (laughs) but we got snowed in and there was nothing to do. And I remember he brings out a guitar and he starts writing songs in front of 150 kids on this ski trip. And we start making up songs for three hours about the kids. And after it was over, like, he's like, you're a nut. We need to do something. So we drove back to Nashville. He doesn't know me at all, except for going on the ski trip. And he drives to a chapel there at the church. And he walks in and he said, how much are you getting paid as a waiter? And I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to offer me a job. So I was like, I bumped it up. You know, I was like $6 and 10 cents an hour is what I'm getting paid, (laughs) fella. High roller. So don't even come at me in the fives. (laughs) And uh, he said, well, he goes, you're going to come work for me. I'm going to pay you $6 and 11 cents an hour. And I go, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, so that grand piano right there? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm going to pay you $6.11 an hour to write songs right there. And I said, what? Who would do that? What kind of songs do you want me to write? And he goes, yeah, whatever you want to write. He goes, how many songs have you written since you've been in Nashville over the last year? I said, none, because I've been trying to make enough money to pay my rent. And he goes, well, that's why you're going to work with me. And he goes, when you get bored of writing songs, hang out with some kids every once in a while. Hmm. When you were writing those songs, were you writing them for the high schoolers, or were you writing them for their parents? Or were you writing them for yourself? Oh, that's a great question. Before I, you know, met DeVries, I was just sitting in my apartment, and I had no material to write songs about, no direction or anything. And so when I was a youth director, he would say, hey, we've got a uh, senior banquet that's happening in May. You know, it'd be April. And he would say, Cloud of Witnesses is our theme for that thing. And he said, why don't you just write a song for the kids? He would do that or he'd say, hey, there's a kid uh, in our youth group. He's got cancer. Man, maybe you should write a song for he and his dad. He's so tired and he's scared. Let him know that you're there. Can you hear me? Am I getting through tonight? Can you see him? Can you make him feel all right? You can hear me. Let me take his place somehow. 
of a sudden I just had tons of material to work through and a date that it had to be done by. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I would get a pot of coffee and lock myself in the chapel and write from five o'clock in the afternoon after hanging out with the kids until three o'clock in the morning and do it the next day, you know? And so I was really writing toward, you know, Cloud of Witnesses. I was writing a story about the kids. But then there were songs like Learn to Let Go was another song that I wrote for a senior banquet. And it's all about the memories that the parents had running through their heads. Like, man, I was up in the attic and I found this picture that you drew when you were three. And I found the teddy bear that you had. And I found this. And, you know, I've learned how to watch you grow. How do I learn to let go? You know? And so that was aimed at the parents. And what I just had 1,500 people just like that, that all of a sudden I just had an audience. I just remember sleepless nights of saying, I just need this to be the greatest song that I've ever written because I want it to resonate with these people. And what I found is, you know, here's the thing. I think, especially in music, when they say, you know, oh, we need a hit. Funny enough, all those songs were hits because I thought when my first record came out, man, nobody's going to buy this record except for the people in the church because they're the only ones that know what these songs are about. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, man, the secret sauce is writing for a small group Mm -hmm. because if you have a small church, there's somebody in that church that has cancer in every church in America. There's some graduating class in some church. Every church has that, you know? And so, you know, you write for specific and all of a sudden you hit everybody. Yeah. You write for everybody and you miss everybody. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was zeroing in on just a few people and those songs tended to resonate with everybody. You know, that's how it turned out to be. So how did all of that end up leading to playing at the Ryman? So I'd written all these songs and uh, I was doing these concerts and I, I did two at First Pres at the church. And we had a gospel choir the first time and a TSU gospel choir the second time do it. And man, they got so big, there was more people there than the church could hold. And one lady said, uh, hey, you should do a show at the Ryman because your, your shows are getting too big for the church. And she was kidding and I didn't know it. So uh, <laughs> I just, I called the Ryman and I was like, hey, I'd like to book a show there. And then like, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Mark Schultz. I'm a youth director, you know, at a church. And they're like, well, nobody does that. You just don't call the Ryman and book a show. And I was like, well, it's a benefit show. I just didn't tell them it was benefiting me, you know? So I was like, how much is it? And it ended up being like $20,000 to do a show there to even with the ticket takers and secu- they go security. And I was like, look, I don't need security. You know, I'm a youth director to church. So I don't need the security guys to show up that day. So I go on a mission trip. We're in Mexico and the kids on my youth group are like, hey, will you play your, your songs? You know, and I was like, okay. And I sat down and I'm playing my songs and there's a dad and his son, and they're they're listening to the songs. And everybody's crying. Everybody's in, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And afterwards, the dad said, uh, hey, you know what? I want to help you. I want to help you do whatever you want to do. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, you don't remember this, but I was in your office five years ago, and I played you my songs, but it just wasn't happening, you know? And he said, well, it's happening now. He uh-huh. said, I don't remember you, but it's happening now. And he said, I want to help you, whatever you need to do. And I said, well, I'm going to play the Ryman. He's like, are you serious? And it was his wife that told me to do the Ryman. And so I said, yeah, I'm going to do the Ryman, but I don't have a band or anything. He goes, man, we got it knocked out. So it was, at the time, it was Amy Grant's band that he lined up to play at the Ryman. And we got... Man, the people of the church just came out of the woodworks. I mean, they were just like, we got the TSU Gospel Choir, but we didn't know how to get them over there. And some people in church said, well, we're just going to rent a Greyhound bus and we'll just go pick them up. 
you know, for the Ryman. And, and I was like, we don't have any robes for them. And somebody goes, I know the church across the street from us. I'll just call them and we'll get the robes, you know, that kind of stuff. Man, kids' moms in the youth group were making food and bringing it in for the meal before, you know, for the gospel choir and all this kind of stuff. So that setup was great. And I was so afraid people weren't going to show up. So I sold them a ticket for 10 bucks starting six months before the show. So it was uh, 10 bucks, got you a ticket to my show, but I was afraid they weren't going to show up. So I wanted to give them a value. So I gave them a free CD from a show that I'd recorded at First Prez. You know, it was a live concert. And every day we would look at the chart and see how many seats it sold and all that kind of thing. Man, the record company heard about it. And so they started getting more interested, like, hey, you're doing a show at the Rhyme. And I try to give them tickets, but they go, still, no, we're not interested. And the night of the show, I remember practicing on stage and doing all that kind of stuff. And it was about seven o'clock time for the show to start. I'm, I'm back with Mark DeVries. And uh, Mark DeVries said, well, are you ready to go? And I said, I think so. And the, the guy who worked at the Ryman came backstage and he said, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to hold the doors for just a little bit because there's a Titans game and a Vanderbilt football game that just got let out. And he said, there's about 300 people in the auditorium, you know? And I was just crushed. And I was like, it holds like 2,500 people, you know, or whatever. Boy. And I just remember looking down at the floor and I, I remember saying, you know what? This was my dream. And I knew that I didn't want to stay in Kansas and not come to Nashville and be 80 years old and look back and say, I didn't try it, you know? Yeah. So I sat in there and I thought, well, that's, I gave it my best shot, you know? I've done everything I can do and that's okay. I mean, that's, that's okay. About 20 minutes later, the guy that ran the Ryman that I booked the show with came back and he said, are you ready to go? And I said, uh, I am. So DeVries walks out first and welcomes everybody, you know, and I can't see him because I'm behind the curtain, you know, and they're getting ready to do the curtain. He said, uh, we're here tonight because there was a kid from Kansas that came to Nashville with a dream and he surrounded himself with people who were just crazy enough to believe it might come true. Hmm. And he said, uh, Welcome to Mark Schultz at the Ryman. They pulled the curtains up, and man, it was packed, 2,500 people. <laughs> and my, my whole youth group is taking up the whole floor, you know what I mean, and all their friends. And it just goes crazy, like the Beatles have just hit the stage, you know, because they're excited for me. And I look up, and my mom and dad are sitting on the front row oh, in the wow. balcony. Hmm. So great. What I don't know is that Word Records found out that it was sold out. And they showed up. They were just going to walk in and listen to be nice, you know, because I invited them or whatever. When they got there, there were no seats left. But they got in because they owned the Ryman at the time. Okay. And so that they walked in and they just stood at the back. And two magical things happened. It was packed because of the youth group and their families. And I was so afraid nobody was going to show up. I gave everybody a CD with the ticket, which means everybody had six months to listen to the record and learn every song on there. So when they walked in and stood at the back of the room, 2,500 people were singing my songs at the top of their lungs. Wow. And Word Records was standing in the back. And one of the guys that went to my church uh, managed Stephen Curtis Chapman at the time. And after the concert was over, they saw him standing next to me and they go, "Are you? who's managing him? Are you managing him? He looked at me and he goes, Yep. <laughs> and uh, all that to say, man, in six months, it was all worked out and I had a record deal. And phew, still, that gives me goosebumps to think all the pieces that had to come together for that to happen, that changed everything for me. Yeah. 
It's amazing to hear all these stories and to hear how many times throughout the course of your life you've had these major champions and cheerleaders cheering you on. Yeah, that's just the thing. I think DeVries showed me. He said, my job is to put you in the race and get in the stands and cheer you on, you know? And I guess I look about that. It just hit me right now. Being the youth director after I hung out with DeVries, riding my bike for orphans, adopting my job's now not to be in the race. My job's to be in the stand, cheering them on. Would you definitely say that you wouldn't be who you are today if it wasn't for running into Mark DeVries? Oh, look, I wouldn't have a record deal. I wouldn't have written all those songs. There's no way I would have never met Kate. I wouldn't have the family that I've got, and I wouldn't have adopted our girls. I would say that's the defining moment of my life. Wow. What a journey Mark has lived. I know. It's amazing. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how his story continues. You know, those kids are going to grow up. He's going to continue cheering them on. He will eventually have time to make more music. Yes, once he gets uh, to sleep again, maybe. (laughs) And he's really a wonderful performer and an amazing songwriter. Great storyteller. In case you forgot any details from Mark's story. We are here for you. Here is a little segment we like to call... Let's rewind the tape. Mark is still playing concerts and being the gifted performer he is. But a big focus for him these days is his wife, Kate, and their four young children. It's a perspective he formed while living in Europe, witnessing families working to live rather than living to work. A trip he very much needed after riding his bike 3,500 miles across the country while playing concerts to raise over a quarter million dollars for orphans. But no one would have come to those concerts if it weren't for a hot pepper eating contest with Mark DeVries in a hotel restaurant. That's it. I'm gonna be keeping my eye out for hot pepper eating contests in the near future. See if one comes my way. <laughs> and changes the course of your life forever, I ever, mean, ever, it... <laughs> ever. <laughs> to find out more about Mark, what he's been up to, go to markschultzmusic.com. This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller, with additional editing by Kyle Henson. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.